Okay, everybody, it is 10 a.m. here in Arizona. I'd like to welcome you all to Unknown Philosophers Live. This is gonna be episode number 13. You can find us at unknownphilosophers.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we are also on YouTube, make sure you subscribe there. And also on Spotify for those long drives when we get back to driving and stuff like that. It's a good spot to, uh, to find these podcasts. Uh, I have one announcement. Cosmo and I have been working on a t-shirt uh, for season one. So we're going to launch that graphic next week, see what people think about it. And uh, that's going to be really cool. Uh, we also want to know, send us some messages on season two. What kind of guests do you want to see? What kind of topics are you guys interested in? Uh, any recommendations? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and without further ado, uh, we've got Brother Cosmo with us again this Saturday morning in a, in a, a different location. Uh, how are you doing this morning, Brother Cosmo? I'm doing great, Brother Briggs. It's, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to launch another episode and uh, looking forward for a great show today. Um, our guest uh, today is Brother Jeremy uh, Trevor. Uh, he is a uh, 32nd degree Freemason, a Knight Templar, originally from Syracuse, New York. Uh, Jeremy uh, currently lives in Ashburn, Virginia, and he's a member of Ashburn Sterling number 288. Uh, Brother Jeremy is also a member of Douglas Smith Jr. Lodge of, uh, of Research Lodge number 1949 in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, Jeremy is also the host of the new Freemasonic podcast show called Just Mason. So if you guys haven't seen it yet, jump on it. It's a really cool show. Uh, the show focuses on in-depth personal and casual discussions uh, with Freemasons with strong focus on esoteric topics. Uh, Brother Jeremy has had a long time interest in mysticism and esoteric subjects since the early 90s. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the uh, Boston University and a master's in uh, counterterrorism studies uh, from the I won't Henley. Fight, I promise. I know. I was going to say <laughs> this is kind of cool. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> from the Henley Putnam University, and um, but the Jeremy lived for 12 years in various West African countries. So he's got lots, lots of knowledge, lots of experiences, and with no further ado. I would love to bring Brother Jeremy on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, Cosmo and uh, Brother Briggs. This is awesome. Um, so I've, I've been watching your show for a while and uh, just loving all the guests and, and just your friendly way of doing the show and the positive vibes coming from you guys. So it's a real honor. Uh, and it's also really good for me to just get pushed to come to some completion in some of my research. You know, sometimes... If you don't have a presentation you have to do about a topic, you'll just be off in rabbit holes for the rest of your life with no conclusion. And so this has really pushed me. It's put a little pressure on me to, to conclude some research a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to share some of that with you guys today. Fantastic. We can't wait. We're going to get a discussion into uh, the Rose Cross, which is a very um, popular subject right now. Um, but before we do that, maybe spend just a minute and uh, tell us a little bit about your show. I, I got to be on it. I loved it. It's definitely been an inspiration for unknown philosophers. Uh, it's been around for a while. And I love how it shows how brothers are in 2020 and how we, how we kind of interact. It's really cool. Just give us a minute about what the show's about. 
Yeah, it's, it's just um, basically it started off um, with an idea I had maybe about a year ago before COVID um, that, you know, it would be cool to do some interviews with Masons. And, and I didn't care who they were. I mean, every Mason was interesting to me. Every human being is interesting to me. And, and I thought, well, just, it would just be interesting to talk to people like, how did you get into Masonry? The kind of stuff you would talk to a Mason about, you know, over, you know, dinner or something. Somebody you're just meeting in a lodge. And um, yeah, and so I just ended up doing the show. It started uh, during COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, I interview whoever. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends that I, I bring on, um, but it's also a way that I meet new brothers uh, that are of interest. It doesn't have to be somebody famous or someone really knowledgeable in any, any particular topic. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been a lot of fun. It's a casual show. It's a fun show. We joke around uh, and we talk about a lot of esoteric topics also. I really enjoy it. I always catch up on it. We're going back and forth to Tucson. So that's, you know, I caught the latest one with uh, brother Timothy Hogan and uh, even my wife was locked into that one. You know, it was, it was awesome. Well, let's get, let's get into the Rose Cross brother. I cannot wait to learn more about this uh, ancient symbol. Cool. Let me uh, share my screen. Okay. So First of all, like I said, I was do- I've been doing research into Rosicrucianism and the Rose Cross symbol for some time. I am not an expert, um, uh, but I'm very curious and I've been exploring this for a while. And when Briggs invited me to the show, I thought, I think he in- initially suggested maybe I do something on the Kabbalah, but I had, I had done something like that recently and I kind of wanted to change it up. And so I thought, well, let me do the Rose Cross because that's something I'm personally interested in at the moment and I'm researching and, and let me try to present some of what I've uh, been researching and some of my findings. Um, I think it's important to, to say that this is um, a process and I'll be presenting uh, you know, some of the basics around the Rose Cross symbol and what it means, uh, including some of my own uh, potential uh, speculations. Uh, and I'll make sure I make that clear when, when it's something of my own thought uh, that I'm bring, bringing forward today. I'll make that clear to the audience so they know the difference between like, okay, something I've read or I picked up in my research versus something I'm proposing that might be novel. Uh, I think that's important, you know, just for, um, you know, integrity of research purposes. It's good to be honest about what you're proposing and what, what's actually something that's already out there. So um, yeah, with that caveat being said, I'll I'll just dive in and and start explaining the symbol of the Rose Cross a little bit. Okay, and there's the first, okay. So the first slide. So what I I thought of doing is basically dividing it into the cross and then the Rose symbol, and and, and then maybe a discussion about how they come together. Um, So first of all, the cross is a very ancient symbol, uh, perhaps one of the most ancient symbols in the world. Uh, and it has a variety of meanings. It has a variety of forms. You can see on the right-hand side of the screen, so many different forms, and that's probably not even all of them. Um, you know, on, on the more mundane level, when, it's, when you think of the new, uh, the sort of Latin cross of, of, of uh, Christianity, uh, the cross recalls the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the redeeming benefits of his passion and death. So that's how most people perceive the, the cross symbol and its meaning. Um, it also means it also has associations with uh, the idea of resurrection and rebirth, which I think the rose just brings that out even further, and we'll get to that. Uh, more esoterically, some people have seen it as a symbol of the four directions, or even the four elements, uh, particularly in alchemy. 
there's also this idea um, which, which I which I like a lot of, of joining heaven and earth. You know, with the vertical line of the cross being uh, our connection to the heavenly realms or to the spiritual realms, and then the horizontal line being sort of the material world, and and then the cross symbolizing sort of our incarnation of our spirit into this world of, of material existence and the sort of joining of those two forces, heaven and earth. Um, and this is kind of my own thing here. Uh, I, I kind of see it also as the here and now of experience in this world, because it's really, it's, it's like a target. It's identifying a point. It's like you are here. You are this incarnated soul in this material existence. You are, you know, betwixt between heaven and earth. Like it or not, you're here and, you, and you're here to learn and, and, and grow in that experience. Uh, and then I have a little quote here from uh, James 1.12 that says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Very interesting quote. So it, it, it really gets down to what I was saying of, you know, us being born into this world and going through trials. This is the whole idea of the, you know, the burden of the cross. Um, and, and then if, if, we can, if we can go through that experience uh, of living in this world and all the trials, there will be a reward uh, from that pain, from that process itself. So the rose symbol uh, is, is a, obviously very well known as a symbol of love. It's also a symbol of passion with the red color in particular. Uh, it's a symbol of sacrifice and associates with blood, also with tears, and even the mixing of the two. Uh, it also is symbolic esoterically around the, the, the blossoming of the wisdom within the heart. And then finally, it also uh, has some um, allusions to secrecy. That's where the term sub rosa or below the rose comes from. So we'll be going over some of this stuff. I'm going to trace a little bit throughout history how the rose has been seen and, and utilized throughout history, starting all the way back in Samaria, Babylon. Uh, and here's a quote from a, a rabbi, Huna, in ba of Babylon that's, that's kind of nice. It says, a rose bent by the wind and pricked by thorns, yet has its heart upturned towards the heaven, or turned to upwards towards the heavens, obviously. Uh, the oldest use of, the, of a rose as the basis for a stylized design uh, comes from Samaria. One is a Sumerian seal showing two scorpions protecting the rosette of the goddess Inanna, dating to the early Bronze Age of Uruk period, circa 3300 BC, very old. The rosette was a sacred symbol of this goddess, Inanna, who's also Ishtar and also can be seen to be Isis. The earliest known written reference to roses exists on clay tablets from the Royal Library at Nineveh, Nineveh modern-day Mosul in Iraq, of King Ashur Banapal. They contain the word Amurdina or Murdinu, Amurdinu or Murdinu, which scholars believe refers to the bramble rose or a wild rose, basically. Uh, and a lot of those have about five petals. Use of this word has also been cited in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, and uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, as translated by Hamilton, contains the following passage. Oh, could we hear those whispering roses sweet, three beauties bending till their petals meet, and blushing, mingling their sweet fragrance, there in a language yet unknown to the mortal ear. 
So yeah, the rose is a very alluring symbol. And you can see uh, I have on the right here <clears throat> a picture of this uh, old Sumerian seal that they talked about with the two scorpions around the rosette. You have uh, the rosette of Inanna or Ishtar, uh, and you can see it in the, the headdress here too. The rose in ancient Egypt. There's a, there's a bunch to be said here. The rose has sometimes been said to have been the emblem of the god Horus in ancient Egypt. However, the gods in Egypt were usually associated with the lotus. So I, I want to make clear that the lotus and the rose, I believe, are interchangeable. Uh, the lotus may be an older uh, symbol of the rose, essentially. And that's even in Buddhism, you have that lotus symbol. The idea of Horus being linked to the rose probably arises from a Greek uh, and Roman cross transmission of myths basically from Egypt. So in ancient times, roses appeared in myths and were appreciated by rulers and used during great celebrations and parties. Cleopatra the seventh, probably inspired by the mythical origins of roses, used their petals during public appearances. She wanted to be remembered as a goddess who smelled like roses. Uh, in, in Egypt, I was going to make a joke, but we'll keep going. Uh, in Egypt, during the Greco-Roman period, wall paintings within Egyptian tombs included roses as a part of their subject matter. Objects were decorated with rose motifs and roses were used in funerary wreaths. Attar of roses, which is an oil of, of, of rose, was used in later periods during mummification. So again, you get this idea of immortality coming with the rose now too. The association with death and the afterlife and rebirth. Roses and rose oil were used in ancient Egyptian medicine. Private and temple gardens included roses in their flower beds. And you can see from some of these Egyptian reliefs and architecture that the rose or the lotus was very commonly used in these motifs. Uh, and in fact, you can even see the hair ornaments here are gold rosettes. In fact, there's seven of them. I thought that was kind of interesting. The lotus flower is connected with the creation myth as the lotus came from the original mud deposit um, beginning or before time. The creator was born from the cup-shaped chalice of the lotus flower. The lotus symbol symbolized the sun of creation, rebirth and regeneration, and represented Upper Egypt. Now I'm starting to get into uh, some interesting stuff here. When you notice Notice I, I put these next to each other. This is kind of leading to uh, one of my own ideas that I'm going to present. Um, you see the, the lotus or the rose, however you want to see it, um, you know, being put to the nose in these Egyptian reliefs. Um, and, and then if you look on the left, you see the same thing happening with the Ankh symbol. Interesting, right? Why, why is the Ankh being placed towards the nose in the same way the lotus is? Okay, let's look at these two Ankhs, ancient Egyptian uh, relics. Uh, one thing I want to point out with these two Ankhs that's very revealing is if you look here at the base, you see a lotus flower blooming when this circle begins. And if you look here on this one, you see the same thing a little more clearly, a lotus flower at the base of this circle. And these three dots, uh, apparently I looked on some academic website where they were talking about this. This is a, a mirror case from an ancient Egyptian tomb fashioned in the image of an Ankh symbol on a flowering lotus stalk. Note that the stalked Shen loop, or also called Ru, uh, contains a lotus blossom, Ru, interesting, R, 
contains a lotus blossom and three golden floral discs. Floral discs. The triad of discs presumably symbolizes the natural three-day lifespan of a lotus flower. So this is really a lot about the rose or the, the lotus, this upper part of the symbol. So here's my fun slide. So here's my uh, grand theory. Um, rose and the Ankh, life. So evidence of two types of roses used in Pharaonic Egypt have survived. One is the Rosa Gallica, which was wildly cultivated in parts of Europe and Rome and Greece and still survives today. The other is the Rose, uh, Rosa Riccardi, which became extinct in Egypt by Islamic times. It was Rosa Riccardi, also known as Rosa Sancta, that was identified as the type of rose included in the funerary wreaths found in tombs of uh, Hawara by Egyptologist William M. Flinders Petrie in the later part of the 19th century. These wreaths have been dated to uh, 170 AD. So that's the Rose Gallica, the pink one there. And you see it has five petals and you see the shapes of the petals. And this is the, the lotus or the, the blue lotus that was so sacred in ancient Egypt. Now, if you look at the Ankh, it's basically a Tau cross on the bottom. Here's the Tau cross in black you can see here. And on the top, you have this loop. And a lot of people have you know, struggled with what's the loop, what's the loop deal, what's going on there. We get the Tao cross, but the loop, some people have said, oh, it's a womb symbol. And then the Tao cross is the, somehow a phallic. So it's the union of male and female. That's out there. Um, but if you look at the, the petals themselves, you get the bottom as an onk, right? Now let's look at the uh, rose petal of the Gallica rose. Very interesting. So, and, and, and if you remember the last slide, I showed that within that hoop was all about that lotus blossom. And there was an illusion that, you know, so much of that loop is about that blossoming of the rose and its stages. So my theory is that this could be a symbol of a petal of a rose. And in other words, this is basically the ancient rose cross symbol, because you have the most ancient form of the cross, which is the Tau cross, and with the rose petal symbol on top. Wow. So that was my own aha moment. So that's Egypt, then we move into Greece. Um, and one of the myths I thought that stood out <clears throat> was the myth of Aphrodite and Adonis. Um, and Aphrodite, also Venus in, in Roman times, uh, was uh, symbolized by the rose, uh, goddess of love, um, and Adonis was the mortal lover of the goddess Aphrodite in Greek mythology. In Ovid's first century AD telling of the myth, he was conceived after Aphrodite cursed his mother Myra to lust after her own father, King Sinya, Sinras, Sin, Siniras of Cyprus. Myra had sex with her father in complete darkness for nine nights, but he discovered her identity and chased her with a sword. The gods transformed her into a mertry, and in the form of a tree, she gave birth to Adonis, which interestingly connects to the Hebrew Adonai, something else, another rabbit hole to explore. Uh, Aphrodite found the infant and gave him to be raised by Persephone, the queen of the underworld. Adonis grew into an astonishingly, astonishingly handsome young man, causing Aphrodite and Persephone to feud over him, with Zeus eventually decreeing that Adonis would spend one third of the year in the underworld with Persephone, one-third of the year with Aphrodite, and the final third of the year with whomever he chose. Adonis chose to spend his final third of the year with Aphrodite. 
This is the key part here. One day, Adonis was gored by a wild boar during a hunting trip and died in Aphrodite's arms as she wept. His blood mingled with her tears and became the anemone flower. It's another type of flower, kind of like a wild rose, basically. Um, and so, again, you get this idea of sort of death and sorrow and suffering and the birth of the rose. Uh, and in this painting here, The Awakening of Adonis, which I am not sure this is actually part of the Greek myth or this, this is an addition by this painter. It's a nice idea, though, um, because we, we end with the, the myth of Aphrodite Adonis with the death and sadness. But this painting depicts an awakening of Adonis. Um, and, and Waterhouse is painting this beautiful boy. The beautiful boy is awakened with a kiss from Venus in her uh, Elysian or Elysian, same thing, pleasure garden. Cupid, the god of love, blows on a torch to rekindle a flame and is accompanied by a band of pato holding flowers. Uh, white doves take to the air and the garden is fecund with roses, symbols of Venus, and anemone flowers that were said to grow from the blood of the dying Adonis. The mythological legend of Adonis as represented in the present painting is therefore symbolic of the renewal of life, vigor, and desire at the arrival of spring. So this is rebirth and uh, regeneration, uh, the afterlife and immortality, something that goes beyond death. And of course, the rose and these flowers are symbolic of that process. Another uh, association with the term um, or with the symbol of the rose is this idea of sub rosa. Many of you might have heard of that uh, expression. Uh, the rose's connotation of secrecy dates back to Greek mythology. Aphrodite gave a rose to her son Eros, the god of love. He in turn gave it to Hippocrates, the god of silence, and a Greek name for a form of Horus to ensure that his mother's indiscretions, or those of the gods in general in other accounts, were not disclosed. Harpocrates was the god of silence, secrets, and confidentiality in the Hellenistic religion developed in Ptolemic uh, Alexandria. Hippocrates was adapted by the Greeks from the Egyptian child god Horus, who represented the newborn sun rising each day at dawn. Hippocrates' name was a Hellenization of the Egyptian Harpa Kered or Herupa Kered, meaning Horus the child. A few other interesting notes, paintings of roses on the ceilings of Roman banquet rooms were also a reminder that things set under the influence of wine, sub vino, should also remain sub rosa. This goes for the Masons too when they go out drinking. Um, in the Middle Ages, a rose suspended from the ceiling of a council chamber similarly pledged all present, those under the rose, to secrecy. In Christian symbolism, the, the phrase sub rosa has a special place in confessions. Pictures of five-petaled roses were often carved on confessionals, indicating that the conversations would remain secret. The phrase has also been understood to refer to the mysterious virginal conception of the Christ. The rose is also an asteric symbol of the Rosicrucians, uh, who, are often, uh, who are considered to be a secret society or a brotherhood. So that's sub rosa. So in, you know, the, the rose symbolism, you know, kept going forward into Rome uh, from Greece. The legend of Aphrodite, Aphrodite was adopted by the Romans who used to call the goddess of love Venus. Uh, Romans made this flower a symbol of beauty and love. It, it was an attribute of Cupid as well. Notably, uh, newly married couples, marriage, the idea of marriage here too, in ancient Rome liked to be crowned with roses, which received the name Rosa Gallica. 
which is a well-known rose even today. And that was the rose I showed you with the onk. Rosa Gallica is currently also called the French rose. Interesting. Makes you think of the fleur-de-lis. I almost added the fleur-de-lis in this presentation, but I just, it was just too much. Um, that's for another one. But it has been known since the 12th century BC, and it came from Europe, to Europe from Persia. And so you can see in these pictures here, we have on the left, the making of rose garlands by multiple cupids and psyches in a wall painting from Pompeii. So they're all making garlands there. And then you have a bust of Dionysus wearing a leopard skin, warrior, and with flowers in his wreath. He's made it uh, on the third. So he's, he's married heaven and earth, perhaps. Another interesting thing I found out is there's this uh, thing called the flowering of the cross, which I didn't know about until I started looking into this stuff. Um, but essentially on Easter Sunday morning, uh, mornings, some Episcopal, Lutheran, and other Protestant churches incorporate a folk ceremony called the flowering of the cross into their worship service. Members of the congregation bring flowers of greenery or greenery to the church. A bare wooden cross dotted with pinholes covered with chicken wire or strung with vines stands in the church. At some point before, during, or after the service, worshipers are invited to approach the barren cross and twine a flower around one of the wires or vines or to place a blossom in one of the pinholes. The congregation continues to decorate the cross until flowers cover it completely. And you can see how beautiful it is on the right there. Some churches link this ceremony to other events in the Christian year by making the cross out of the previous year's Christmas tree. The barren cross may then be brought into the church on Ash Wednesday or on some other suitable occasion during Lent. The flowering of the cross represents the transition from Good Friday, uh, the day of the death of, of Christ, to Easter, the resurrection day. Uh, three days later. From meditation on Jesus's death, the joy celebration uh, uh, of his resurrection, basically, that's what the flowers are about. The ceremony transforms a barren cross, a reminder of Jesus's death, on, into an Easter symbol. Covered with fresh living flowers, the cross serves not only as an emblem of Jesus's resurrection, but also of the continuing presence of Christ among today's Christians. The flowering cross is also found in early Christian art as early as the sixth century and is based on a legend that says that the cross itself burst into bloom at the moment that Jesus died. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, okay, so then we get to the, the sort of rose cross degree jewel in uh, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, um, which, which has this really powerful image of a pelican under the rosy cross. See the, the white cross with the rose there. Um, and, and the pelican is actually taking, you know, its own flesh from its heart and feeding it to its, uh, its young. So the, the pelican is said to pierce its breast, to feed its young ones with its blood and save them from starvation. As the embodiment of self-sacrifice, the bird came to be likened to Christ, ready, readily giving up his blood, his life and blood for the spiritual nourishment of other people and thus became the ideal symbol for reparation and salvation. And this gets to the whole tiku. Uh, tikkun olam, olam of, of, the, of the Jews, the idea of the reparation of the world. Uh, the mag, uh, magnanimous nature of the pelican has also made it a symbol of charity, generosity, nurturing, resourcefulness, responsibility, humility, and commodity. So this is a very important I, idea here that really gets deep to, the, I think, the, the, the juncture of the cross and rose as, as two concepts coming together. And especially, you can even see in the, in the cross here with uh, with Christ crucified. And interestingly, all the blood 
of his suffering, the red blood of his suffering is being collected in grails. Um, and, and, and so I think that the grail too has a lot of connection to the idea of the rose. Uh, and, and, it, and it really it's, it's what is accrued through our life of pain, you know, through self-sacrifice and trying to become a better person, trying to help this world and with an earnest heart, truly wanting to do good and not to because you want to be seen as doing good or to get rewarded for that, but because you're driven by that. You really want to do good in this world and that's your primary concern. When that becomes your primary concern, I'd say, in my own opinion, you're a Rosicrucian, right? You're on that path. And so that suffering that comes about from that struggle to, to be better and to do good in this world, that, that theurgical process, uh, that, that releases, you could say, you know, blood or tears or sorrow, that suffering releases some kind of an essence that perhaps then leads to the growth of this rose, this idea of the rose growing. And that would be the, you know, the, the maturity or the maturation process of the soul, the wisdom, the unfoldment of the heart. And, and the illumination process and that, that connection with heaven and earth. So obviously Rosicrucianism, I'm not gonna talk a lot about that in this presentation because that's, that's for like 30,000 other presentations. Um, but uh, you know, here's a quote from Mackey. Well, Rosicrucians, obviously their big symbol is the Rose Cross. Um, and uh, they are all about doing good in the world and being unrecognized for that and doing that in an invisible manner. Uh, and they're very deeply into esoteric studies, including hermeticism and alchemy and the Kabbalah. Uh, they don't really care where that wisdom comes from. They're seeking it out and they're integrating um, for the betterment of this world and for themselves, the betterment of themselves. Because, you know, obviously you're, you're only as, your, your impact on the world is going to be also impacted and tainted by your own errors and your own imperfections. So you need to improve yourself such that you're not messing up on your efforts to improve the world. So it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a parallel process that goes on. Um, you know, Mackey said here uh, in his Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, many writer, writers have sought to discover a close connection between the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. And some indeed have advanced the theory that the latter are only the successes of the former. And like, in other words, the Rosicrucians have, the Freemasons sort of came out of Rosicrucianism. Whether this opinion be correct or not, and he's not saying here, uh, there are sufficient coincidences of character between the two to render the history of Rosicrucianism highly interesting to the Masonic student. Very true. Um, and I'm going to finish with uh, one final connection with the rose, this idea of the connection of the nightingale, that bird that sings so beautifully and, and has amazing sounds. Um, and when I started doing this research, I actually started listening to nightingale songs on, on YouTube while I was doing the research. And, you know, I've, I, I've experimented with listening to music while I work, but, you know, sometimes if it's too good, it distracts me and I can't concentrate because I'm hearing the music. Uh, but yet I don't like total silence. Sometimes it gets boring when you're doing hard work. So I found that if I put the Nightingale songs on, um, I can work, I can concentrate. It's amazing. I recommend others try that. Uh, during the Romantic era, the symbolism of a Nightingale was viewed not only as a poet, but as a master of a superior art that could inspire the human poet. For some Romantic poets, the Nightingale even began to take on qualities of the muse. 
The Nightingale has a long history with symbolic associations ranging from creativity, the muse, nature's purity, and in Western spiritual tradition, virtue and goodness. In the lyrical ghazal, which is like an Arabic form of poetry that um, is an expression of both the pain of loss or, or separation and the beauty of love in spite of that pain, very interesting in, in light of the whole Rose Cross idea. Um, in the lyrical ghazal, it is the beauty of the rose that provokes the longing song of the nightingale. So an image prominent, for example, in the poems of Hafez. So yeah, so some, somehow, you know, th this is a beautiful poetic idea here that, that, that the singing of the nightingale and the beauty of its singing and the, the, you know, the incredible nature of the sounds it makes is provoked by, you know, its longing uh, for the beauty of the rose or love. So I'm going to end on a poetic note. Um, this is part of a short story by Oscar Wilde that I came across called The Nightingale and the Rose. And I thought it was quite beautiful. It's, it's basically a story of a, of a student, a young student who's infatuated with this girl and wants to give her a rose, but he doesn't have a rose. And he's crying. He's so sad. He doesn't have a rose. And the nightingale sees him crying and feels bad for him and wants to find a rose and goes to like different types of rose trees and one doesn't have any roses the other ones roses are white um and and so finally it comes to one of the rose trees um and and i'll, I'll start from that point in the in the short story it says so the nightingale flew over to the rose tree that was growing beneath the student's window give me a red rose she cried and i will sing you my sweetest song but the tree shook its head no i'm not my roses are red it answered as red as the feet of the dove, and redder than the great fans of coral that wave and wave in the ocean cavern. But the winter has chilled my veins, and the frost has nippled my buds, and the storm has broken my branches, and I shall have no roses at all this year. One rose is all I want, cried the nightingale. Only one red rose. Is there no way by which I can get it? There is a way, answered the tree, but it is so terrible that I dare not tell it to you. Tell it to me, said the nightingale. I'm not afraid. If you want a... Now, remember, this nightingale really had love in its heart for this boy and wanted so bad to help this boy and alleviate the boy's suffering and sadness. So this, you could say that this nightingale is the symbol of the Rosicrucian here. If you want a red rose, said the tree, you must build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with your own heart's blood. You must sing to me with your breast against a thorn. All night long you must sing to me, and the thorn must pierce your heart, and your lifeblood must flow into my veins and become mine. So then the nightingale goes to the, the crying student and promises that, don't worry, I'm going to get you that rose. And you guys can read the whole story and find out the ending and everything. Um, but uh, when, he, when the nightingale goes to the young boy that was crying, the young student was still lying on the grass, where she had left him and the tears were not yet dry in his beautiful eyes. Be happy, cried the nightingale, be happy. You shall have your red rose. I will, I will build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with my own heart's blood. All that I ask of you in return is that you will be a true lover for love is wiser than philosophy, though she is wise and mightier than power, though he is mighty. Flame colored are his wings. And colored like flame is his body. His lips are sweet as honey, and his breath is like frankincense.
There you go. Thank you. So by the way, Oscar Wilde was a Mason, if, if folks don't know that. Wow, Brother Jeremy, that was absolutely incredible. <laughs> nice, uh, man. I've taken some notes here. I'll kind of maybe make some comments um, on my notes. I could probably only read maybe 10% because you, you really shined a light on some new things for me on this symbol. Uh, one of them being, um, it seems that this symbol in particular has been solidified. It seems no matter what culture it goes through, and even Brother Perez was mentioning Ross Tao, it seems to still contain the symbol of love and that oil of fragrance that comes out of it and something to do with the petals. It seems as though um, uh, it's kept that. Um, in the Hindu, the Hindu tradition, I love reading about Vishnu and Brahma and how they challenge each other like, you go up and I'll go down and we'll see if there's an end to the universe. I, I love those stories. And I found yeah. one where they're taught. Yeah. It's like me and Cosmo. One of you is and, as above so, and the other's as below. And so, <laughs> so that, you know, it's, I think it's Brahma says, um, and, and this will kind of fit into the Lotus and the Rose that you, you mentioned mm -hmm. um, says, uh, I think the rose is, is uh, more beautiful. And so he takes Vishnu to a celestial garden and they're looking at the rose and Vishnu says, I love the rose. And I think, and, and I heard this from somebody else that maybe the lotus was used more because I think it was at the time a more vibrant flower than what we have today and how we've modified it and we get it from different parts of the world. That original right. one, that Gallica one you showed was right. probably it. Because even the word, I think, might have came from the color of pink and like a, a purple. Um, another mm. thing you mentioned was the bird. That gave me the chills because the Brahmin, uh, when they are orally uh, passing their tradition to the young, they did a study on their language and there's no coda. They found out it's bird sounds. So oh, wow. again, could wow. this origin be from bird sounds, you know? Fascinating. So that, that gave me the chills. Uh, Right. And wings in general have always been symbolic of the spiritual, you know, upward journey or whatever. Yeah. And then the cross, you know, the intersection of you and God, you know, that, that journey of uh, becoming one with God, mm. um, that, that, that intersection seems to be another symbol that's been solidified um, as well. And then last, the ankh. That mm. one I have looked at forever. And for some reason, my eyes have just never seen it. And, and you just started illuminating it for me. And I saw the three parts now. And even now, the flower on top makes perfect yeah. sense of, of, uh, of life. Right. You know, of how the rose um, is attracted to the sun, that symbol of life. And I also see in my mind, I was thinking of the shabling, of the three parts of the shabling. I can now see that converted maybe into Egypt or vice versa into the three parts of the ankh. I thought that was really interesting. Wow. Man, there was yeah. so much there. Um, I could say more, but Cosmo, uh, jump in, brother. What, yeah. what, what's got you sparked? Well, uh, all of what you said, and I'm going to add more to it. Because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, as a boy growing up in Italy, uh, the roses, you know, my grandmother, uh, mm. she would have roses everywhere. And right. she would never, ever throw away a rose, okay? Mm. Because she said that was the most sacred uh, one of the most sacred flowers in Italy. And um, to her, that was. And what she would do is she would take these roses and she would put them in a, in a, you know, when they were blooming, she would have them in a, in a beautiful vase. Then when they were about to, well, 
she would take the petals out one by one. I mean, I would see her as a kid, one by one, take them out. And she put them in a small little pot and she would boil some water and she would extract some oil out of them. And she would take that rose oil and you know, she put it on her skin. She put it, you know, yeah. uh, everywhere. Like she used as her scent and she always smelled like roses. I mean, that's what like, she would like do. Like Cleopatra, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. She, did the, she did that with roses and yeah. she did that with chamomile. Right. And those were oh, two. Chamomile. Yeah. Chamomile. Those two major flowers. And she was fascinated by it. And Oh, chamomile. Oh, I thought you said camel yeah. milk. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Say, well, chamomile. That's a very yeah. different smell than smelling like roses. <laughs> <laughs> The other, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, you know, one of my other favorite, uh, favorite short stories is A Rose for Emily by Faulkner. And mm-hmm. if you ever read it, it's, it's uh, basically his wife dies. And every morning, well, before she died, every morning he would place a rose next to her bedstand. And then he would go off to work. And then he would come back, you know, and, and she, it, he would replace it with another rose. And then when she died... Um, he, he kept her body in the bed, rotten. The whole body was rotten. And he thought that the, that the rose would eventually bring her back from the dead. I mean, that oh, was wow. the kind of whole thing. Wow. I mean, it was an amazing story. That's yeah, beautiful. Wow. <laughs> so that yeah. kind of reminded me of that story, you know. So. Well, a couple of things I thought of when you guys were talking. Um, one thing about the, the lotus, um, you know, and the idea that it, it, it comes out of the sort of the mud of the darkness of the mud and the, the silt and it's something so beautiful emerges that separates itself out of yes. this dirty process. In a way, the lotus almost embodies the whole idea of the rose cross without the cross needing to be there. Because the idea of the cross is that burden in the background, right, of this incarnate experience where, you know, a heavenly thing, our soul or whatever you want to call it, has come into material form and with all this restriction, you know, and that's a painful, burdensome toil that we have to go through. Um, Well, the the idea of the mud that the, the lotus is growing from right there takes care of that idea of the burden that the rose comes out of, right? So the lotus kind of embodies the whole rose cross idea in and of itself, even by itself. Um, yeah, and also the, other thing, the other thing I wanted to say is that um, this idea of the heart versus the mind, I think, is an important concept that comes through uh, in a lot of Rosicrucian um, uh, philosophy that, that at the end, and that comes through in, in, in um, uh, Oscar Wilde's story, too, if you read that, that at the end of the day, it's more important to have a good heart than to be smart. You know what I mean? Because you can be really intelligent. You can know all the esoteric secrets. You can have all the alchemy figured out. But if you're not a nice person and you're not compassionate and you're not empathetic and, and you're, you're not bringing positivity into the world, then you're not getting it. You know, you're not there yet. And so, um, and I think uh, was a brother, brother uh, Dawkins was, was talking in one lecture I saw by him recently where he said that, um, that, that one of the secrets of the two pillars is that actually the pillar of mercy is more important. So it's not an equal balance. He was saying, I thought that was interesting, that the pillar of mercy needs to be stronger. That at the end, it's the heart that is more important than the intellect. You know? and, and so I think that's an important idea. I mean, because you, you can have someone ignorant, basically, that never went to school, is completely uneducated, and they can be a saint. But yeah, it's not and, vice versa. And live in a cave for 30 you know, years. Yeah. You can't have someone with a bad heart, yeah. but super educated and be a saint. Yeah, because that, that impose on the, in, on the inside, right? Right. It's that, uh, that raising of that awareness. 
you know, as the Rishis are writing, they were probably watching that Lotus. And as they're experiencing what we call the soul that's in the Merc, you know, mm. the goal is to get that to come out so that we're not right. broadcasting from the brain. We're broadcasting from the soul. That's where that decency, that love yes. now takes over. And we don't have conflict on the inside. That's enlightenment. When you know you're enlightened, when you know you don't have conflict up here anymore and you're not, yeah. and you're not causing it, more importantly. Right. <laughs> but yeah. the it's Lotus. Yeah. And the Lotus, you know, as it comes out through the murk and then it sits on the water, it almost looks like it sits on top of the water. Right. It's yeah. not in conflict anymore. And they're going, you know, that's the crown. Yeah. That's, that's the goal in life is to sit on top of the matter, detach from it. Like the Lotus sit on top without conflict, check it out. Now when conflict happens, you, you have to operate, but it's a different type of operation. Do I, do I sound like I'm on the right kind of linear? Right. Idea? Right. You're, you're, it's like the idea of being from the earth, but not of it. Right. So the Lotus is from the earth. The roots are in the earth still. It's not actually yeah. separated. It's in the world but it's not of it. Yeah. It's a different, it's, it's a different aspect, man. It's a view. I yeah. get glimpses. I haven't locked in, but you know, we all get those, those glimpses and that goal is to, at least that, that's what I'm working on. I think you are too, is, is to of course, get in, yeah, that, yeah. in that permanent state. How about you Cosmo? And then uh, any questions from any of our uh, audience? This is, this is wonderful. I just want to add one more thing, brother Jeremy, you know, the Lotus, uh, uh, it keeps reminding me of this Asian folklore of, you know, what it, it blooms at a certain time of the year. I think it was a Japanese story where it was the flower of life and the whole story. I think this was actually an anime movie that I saw many years ago mm -hmm. that where they would go and, and try to find for this lotus. And that was the, the they had to eat it to, to bring mm -hmm. back or to save somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of interesting, you know. Interesting. Uh, remind me of that story. I remember the name of it. I got to find it. It, it. it was a really interesting uh, story. I think there's a lot of stories out there, you know, with the rose symbolism. It's got such a, a ancient uh, history and rich yeah. history, and especially associated with poetry. Yeah. Language of the heart. Yeah. Do we have any questions uh, from the uh, audience? Check Facebook. Do you have any more information on Ross Tao? Ross Tao. Um, well, I know that there's a connection with um, the, the Cairo symbol and the, the, the capital of Egypt, Cairo. Um, and the, the Tao, well, I, well, yeah, Tao is the Tao cross and Ross is the rose, right? So it's the rose cross. Um, and and Kiro, Ki is the cross. Uh, it also represents Christ. Um, and then uh, Ro is the, the, the rose. So yeah, it's, it's a rose cross, basically. And we have another one here uh, in the, uh, from Brother Stephen. In the story of the blue lotus, represented in the tree blue rosettes on the master's apron. Great. Um, three, uh -huh. not, not, oh, three. Yeah. There's three row, uh, three petals or maybe, or maybe that was on a, maybe that was oh, on three a rosettes apron. on the master's apron. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. That's true. Um, and it reminds me of that poem, uh, one of my earlier slides, I think talking about the three roses, where is it? Let me see. Uh, I think it was in my first slide or the, one of the early sides. 
Yeah, this is from the um, Gilga, Epic of Gilgamesh. It says, oh, wow. uh, you know, oh, oh, could we hear those whispering roses sweet? Three beauties, three, bending till their petals meet. Wow. Yes. And blushing, mingling their sweet fragrance there in a language yet unknown to mortal ear, yet unknown, sub rosa still. See, we think all this information is new of the cuneiform (laughs) and the, you know, these scrolls that are found. But man, you go back and you read the testimonies of the the alchemists in any part Mm. of the world and they're quoting from this stuff. It's it's incredible, especially the, the cuneiform. I mean, like you said, it's the oldest language we have in print and it's in stone so you you can't fudge it you know and i don't know if you've read those texts when i was sick i read maybe 800 of them or something and it's like it's like george lucas went back in time and wrote some space epic it's it's amazing um, oh yeah those stories but uh that's incredible and then and then that's something else i didn't bring up is you found uh, where the rose was spoken about um, in those tablets. Uh, that's something yeah. I've looked for, and uh, that's incredible. Again, yeah. just the same. Uh, another symbol that comes out of that is that oil, you know, and you had the picture of, yes. of, of Christ being crucified in the blood. But I also think of the oil. Again, there's another story of a, of a wise man cutting his finger off, and he's bleeding oil. And he's like, oh, I'm pure. And then the gods come down and go, (laughs) (laughs) but there's something, but there's something to that. Maybe it had to do with, again, the oil of the, of the rose. And, and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my grandparents lived in Albuquerque uh, and there was a library just down the street and they had a rose garden. And I remember I was a kid, I would just walk to the library to get the choose your own adventure books. Do you guys remember those? Oh, I used to be Uh, addicted to those. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's how I got into reading. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So I didn't every day, until those books came out. Yeah, so every day I'm going back and forth, and yeah. um, I'm wearing them out, and so I go through the rose garden and would watch the bees, and just the smell, you know, it's kind of like menthol. It goes through your body, and uh, it's interesting how um, whatever the science is behind it, whatever the frequency that's coming off it, it's interesting how it does affect our mind and our spine, and. And, oh, absolutely! Uh, it's really cool. It's a yeah, really and the cool, sense of smell uh, also, of also is so so directly connected to the brain. Uh, you know what goes in the nose there; it really affects the brain. And I, I remember uh, when I was working in the um, embassy in Senegal, uh, in West Africa. There was when I parked my car at the embassy, and I'd walk into the front gates. There were there were jasmine trees. Mm. And, and during, you know, springtime or whatever, they, they would bloom and oh my God, it smelled so good. I just wanted to stop. They say, stop and smell the roses or smell the jasmine. Uh, but it was just incredible. And it just made me feel so good. It, it's the, the stuff, they, the scents are so good when they're still alive and it's coming right off the tree. It's yeah. un, unreal, unreal. When I was in uh, Amsterdam, I got to sit with Joost Rittman. And when we were talking, uh, I asked him about the uh, Rose and the Cross. And he gave me the story of love. You know, for him, it's just love. But he also mentioned, um, and I don't know where it comes from, that again, somebody who's in that state we're talking about, that, that no conflict state, that, that to him, they'll even ooze a fragrance of the rose. And wow. uh, when he was talking about that, I was just kind of sitting back like, that's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're really toxic, even physically, uh, you can have BO, 
you know, bad body odor. And then when you kind of clean up, you start eating healthier, you don't eat so much, you exercise, yep. your sweat actually doesn't smell as bad. Yeah. Um, and I guess if you take that to an extreme and you become really pure, you might actually exude a good scent. I don't know. I'm not there yet. Yeah, but same here. I'd love to be. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would agree with you, Brother Jeremy, yeah. because yeah. Uh, I'm actually, I'm, I, I, I keep a lot of notes when it comes to food and diet and eating the right things, not just for your, because they're healthy for you, but because they're made for you, you know. Yeah. Certain people will eat certain foods that certain people don't like it. So, like, you know, you might like Mexican food and Greg's might like Asian food, you know. But, again, you're eating for what your body's actually craving. And because of that, you know, I say a person is what they eat. You know, if you're eating those right things for you, specifically. Your accumulation that, of it. That yeah. the creator yeah. embedded that, that, you know, DNA into you to eat right. those types of food. That's right. You know, that's that's the reason why a lot of Native Americans have have issues with their health, is because they're eating the white man's food. They're eating the right. white it doesn't man's. Doesn't match them. It doesn't match their DNA. You know, we brought that's it right. here. That's right. So it's very true. Yeah, I I think that's very true. And I always try to find you know what foods make me feel best, Correct. not what tastes best while I eat it. But it, I, I mean, I think you could actually find the foods that make you feel good and healthy, and taste good. That's the ideal. And, and for me, that's been like traditional home cooked, you know, ethnic food. Um, I, I, I like that the best versus, you know, more modern uh, food in general. Yeah. Hey, I got back in. Can you hear me now? Hey, hey what's hey, up, brother you, Fritz? Brother Fritz, I have a question for you, brother Fritz. Actually, oh. not a question, but brother Jeremy. Yes. Brother Fritz did a really wonderful presentation. Uh, I believe it was last, was it last week or two weeks, five days ago? Yeah, last, last Friday. Week. Last I Friday. Saw it. Yeah, you were there. And awesome. are there any connection with the Celts uh, and the cross and the Rose Cross? Perhaps so, maybe. Well, this is going to kind of go with what I was going to ask Jeremy. Two things. Now, I don't know if you caught it. Number one, what's the name of the Rose? Rosa Which Gallica? One? Gallica, Rosa Gallica. Gallica. Which is, I think. Oh, uh, kind of like Gaelic. Oh, Galatian. Ah. So, uh, now, 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 the other question is. This is this Boom. is gonna go, this is going to go right with your. Wait. Is that associated with the um, four leaf clover? I wonder. Hmm. No, actually, if you look at the rose of Gallic, it's also called the French rose. That's okay? right. Okay, you call it as the French rose. If you look at where the Celts had the majority, I, I alluded to this in my presentation. The majority of the Celts were north of Paris better known as shot or shatra c-h-a-t-r-e or r yeah r-e okay um if you you're talking about the pelican right yes do you know the you know the significance of shot by any no. chance in the christian faith it's the very first gothic cathedral it's also the home of what was called the builder's school um of masons and architects okay if you go, if you go Google this and have some fun with it, go Google Pelican on the Cathedral of Shot. Oh, okay. that's right. And it's guess there. what you're oh, going to wow. find? You yeah. are going to find in not only in in statue form, but looking at the stained glass. It's over a thousand years old. Is the symbol for the rose croix with the oh, pelican. Wow. 
Wow. Wow. Amazing. That's the, uh, is that, that's the cathedral that's got the uh, maze that came off of the back of that, that uh, Middle Eastern alchemical text, right? It's got the yes. maze in the floor. Wow. Yes. That, that place is, wow. It's you, a you uh, gotta re- go. repository. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll go but together. That, we'll get a big group. Wow. Yeah. I'm looking at that right now. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's all, that's all part wow. of everything. Isn't there Templar, uh, in Templar, tombs there burials too or something uh i don't know about that but i know that there are three statues at the entrance to it that would put it into you might have heard people believe masons of course believe that it's king solomon hiram of tyre and hiram abyss yeah yeah interesting this interesting one of the one of the statues it's got a, a demonic figure in the back of it, uh, back of the pelican with yeah. the wings. I thought it's kind of cool. Hmm. But if you look at the stained glass that's on the inside, there's four different representations of the pelican. Wow. And those, hmm. those we're talking, those are like 2,000 years old, 1,000 year old symbolization. But it kind of, like I said, it kind of goes back to what I alluded to with everything's connected together with the Celtic people. Because um, when you were talking about the Ankh and you were talking about the other pieces in the, you know, the Indo-European concept of coming together, it's just, it it, it brings Hmm. all of the, all of the discussion out from where you go and I, one of the things that I talk about all the time with people that nobody talks about the Celts, mm-hmm. right? So, yep. and, and they've got to be put in there because I was just amazed when you brought up the Rosa Gallica because that. So that did the was, Celtics have a Rose cross idea? Just the word <laughs> Gallic, like that blew me away. Right. That's yeah. So if I'm you surprised look I didn't up, think of that. Yeah. If you look up, <laughs> if you look up a traditional, Celtic cross, and I brought this out on my presentation. Um, it is a point within a circle. It is not what we think of as a traditional cross. Um, that was Christianized after the fact. But um, the original Celtic cross is a point within a circle. So, yeah. Well, the Christian, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, the, Cosmo. The Christianized version is the one you had earlier with the circle and then the cross in the middle. Right. Yeah, and, and if you look at a traditional Celtic cross, each end is equal. Yeah. So, um, and that and is think, the. Go ahead. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the um, what is it? The the wreath that goes around the head of, of flowers or roses isn't that Celtic? And then if you think of the body as like a towel cross, right? When you put your arms out, you got a yeah. T for them, and then you wear that on your head, you got the rose cross. You In know, Hinduism, you have those garlands too. Up, mm-hmm. I guess on high there. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time that was yeah. mis- when you're when you're talking about that piece of it, you're talking mostly about mistletoe. So ah, the, the mistletoe true, right. was the crown. So mistletoe. and that was a sacred that was a sacred thing. And the, the mistletoe what makes it unique is it doesn't grow in the ground. It grows and lives off another tree. That's right. So, very special. In the air. So that symbol yep. again solidified. Well, guys. This has yeah. been incredible. I've got a lot to think about this week. Um, Brother Jeremy, you've uh, opened up all of our eyes to some new symbols. Thank you so much for your work. You know, this is a good um, example of what season two is going to be like. We've, we've got a lot of uh, 
people accepting an invitation for season two, but the difference is um, we're asking them to demonstrate something. And today you demonstrated uh, your research and your knowledge and your love uh, for this stuff. And uh, it was truly inspiring. Um, I want to thank everybody on Facebook that joined us today. I want to thank everybody on Zoom. Uh, after this is over, we'll, we'll cut it. We'll get the studio cut up in the next couple of days on all the platforms. Uh, look for the new shirt. Uh, we're really looking forward to the future of this show and uh, presentations like this. Uh, you hit it out of the ballpark. I can't thank you again. Uh, Thanks, fantastic. Uh, wow. Brother Cosmo, uh, what do you got? Oh, Brother Jeremy, again, I want to thank you for being on the show. I'd like to thank all of our, uh, our audience uh, all and their questions and all of our input. Again, I learned something today as well. Uh, every time we're on the show, we're always picking something new and we can apply in our own lives so that we can, again, become our own Luciferians and, and, and grow right from that. That's what it's all yeah. about. And uh, we look forward to having you, uh, you know, in future shows, future seasons. Maybe we can cross paths in different platforms yeah, yeah, and have some more fun. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I really uh, enjoyed it today. Thank you so much, brother. Thank no, you. it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been uh, fabulous. Uh, and, and thank you for pushing me to finish a little bit of research. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's awesome. I, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from this experience. So uh, thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you. And as always, uh, before we go, Brother Jeremy, we always ask everybody to uh, give us some words of wisdom to help us kind of meditate on uh, through the week. And then once you do that, I'll, uh, I'll cut the signal here. Best wishes to everybody. I hope you guys have a good week. And I thank you again, Brother Jeremy. Yeah, no, my pleasure. It's a wisdom. Um, well, it's the, you know, Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say, you know, I, I got some words from, of wisdom from a, a rabbi I was watching online uh, who was very knowledgeable, a Kabbalist. And he was saying that, you know, uh, according to the Talmud, when a new year starts with poverty or difficulty, uh, it will end with uh, pleasure and, and riches. And so I'm hoping, you know, during this hard time, we're all going through a lot. A lot of people are, you know, going through economic hard times and other kinds of suffering because of this pandemic. I'm just hoping that we get through this this year and that something good comes out. Uh, we all need some good news. And so I'm, I'm praying for everybody and uh, just stay strong and uh, keep, keep your spiritual connection. Most important thing. <laughs>